So, if you look at my Bible, almost the entirety of Matthew chapter 5 is in red ink. And that means Jesus is the one talking. And as he is the one who's talking, we're going to pay close attention. And I thought I was going to go through the Sermon on the Mount relatively quickly. That's the section we're in, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But it turns out, based on my decision uh, last night, I think we're going to go through it a little bit more slowly because it's just too good. There's too much good stuff. But we're in a series going through the entirety of the book of Matthew. And in Matthew, we have already learned a few things. I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. The first thing we've learned is that Jesus is the great king of kings. He is the king above all kings. At the beginning of Matthew, he compared Jesus' genealogy to David by talking about the number 14. And for Hebrews, the number 14 was symbolic of David, King David, the great King David. And so by Jesus having like three sets of 14 in his genealogy, that was Matthew trying to tell us that Jesus was the king better than David. He was more David than David. And as a result, that makes him the great king above all kings. The next one is that he's the king of victory through selflessness. We think that victory is one of these things that we want our kings to have. We love it when our kings are the strongest in the world. If my king is stronger than anyone else's king, then I feel safe. And we are willing to put up with a bully king. We are willing to put up with a king who does all kinds of things that we wouldn't want to do ourselves or train our children to do, just so long as that king is strong enough to keep us safe. But Jesus demonstrates a kind of victory that he wins through selflessness. He defeats sin and he defeats his own pride in the chapters that we saw, chapters 2 and 3. And then we looked at the fact that Jesus is the one, he's the king who doesn't protect the borders. He doesn't preserve the borders. He expands the borders. In Jesus' kingdom, he is always about widening who is in and broadening who can be in. But not only does he widen the borders of who's able to enter in, he also meets the needs of everyone he comes across and he calls his followers to do the same. Last week, we found that Jesus was a king who did things that expressed ultimate authority, but then he called human beings to follow him in that, to join him in that. And so today, we're going to move forward to find out what does Jesus do once he's got some followers? Once he's got people who are on his team, what does he do with them? In other words, how does he begin to establish his kingdom? And Matthew does something really interesting. Because Matthew, at this part of his book, does something that scholars have debated a lot throughout the centuries. But I think what Matthew is doing is he is trying to make Jesus look more like Moses. See, the interesting thing is that Matthew has already compared Jesus to David. Jesus is already the king who's better than David. But there is another great person in Israel's history that the people who are like the super Jews, the people who are like really big into Jewish history and they love their Jewish tradition and heritage, those people didn't just love David. They also really loved Moses. And Matthew, at this point, is trying to tell us that Jesus isn't just the king better than David. He is the prophet better than Moses. 
And I'll show you how I know that. But first, let's skip back into the passage where Moses himself tells us another Moses is coming. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the the assembly. Now, I'll leave that up on the screen here for just a little bit. What is Horeb? Horeb is the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given. Sometimes it's called Mount Sinai. It goes by various names in the Old Testament. And Horeb is one of the names that is used frequently in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses says, don't you remember what happened at that mountain? At that mountain, God descended in a giant fiery cloud. Now, remember, he had been leading the people out of Egypt with a pillar of fire that was uh, fire by night and cloud by day. But now they're at this mountain, and a giant cloud of fire and smoke and blackness descends on this mountain. And the people are scared. And Moses says, don't anyone go up to the mountain and touch it, because now it is holy. God's presence is there. And when holiness touches unholiness, holiness wins and y'all going to be killed, so stay away. But God says, Moses, I'm going to let you come up here. So Moses heads up there, and he gets a few instructions from God. He comes back to tell the people that he's serious. They need to stay away from the mountain. And then God's voice speaks. And God's voice from the cloud above the mountain speaks out the Ten Commandments. The first time the Ten Commandments were given, they were not written on tablets of stone. The first time the Ten Commandments were given, they were voiced by God himself. And the people around the mountain were so terrified, they said to Moses, don't ever let that happen again. Moses, we'll make you a deal. How about you go up and talk to God, and then you come and tell us what he says. But don't let God speak to us again. And Moses, in Deuteronomy 18, says, this is what you wanted. You wanted a mediator between you and God, and I have been that. But now it's the end of Deuteronomy 18. Moses is going to die very soon. And he's telling them that there is someday going to be another prophet like him who is going to be the mediator that they need between the scary voice of God and what they need to hear. Moses also says, quoting them, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. And certainly they would have if they had gotten too close to that mountain. But here's the interesting thing. I bring it up Because Matthew, immediately at the beginning of Jesus' journey of building his kingdom, does the same thing that happens in the book of Exodus. Jesus is building his kingdom. He has just liberated some people from sickness by healing them. And now, as he's starting to establish his kingdom, where does he go but to a mountainside? He goes to a mountainside, and what does he do? He begins to teach them. And how does he teach them? He gives them a list. The first thing he gives them is a list of eight things that we have generally called the Beatitudes. Now, before I get into reading what they actually are, the Beatitudes, I just need to remind you, do not come from the word attitude. It's not the attitudes that you need to be. It's it's a different word entirely. It comes from the Latin root beat which refers to something divine or holy or something blessed. And, and it's, so it's the idea, if you ever heard the term for when a saint in the Catholic Church gets made a saint, that's called beatification. 
that person has become a saint. If you ever read old literature about a person who has some sort of enlightenment moment, sometimes the enlightenment is called a beatific vision because it's sort of like they saw God, you know, they had the light turn on for them. The beat prefix just basically means someone has been super blessed. The problem for us is that when we read these words, because you're going to hear me say things you've heard before, like blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't actually say blessed. I just say blessed because that helps a little bit. But the big problem is that whenever we use that word blessed, we're now in religious mode, right? You never hear anyone say the word blessed unless they're in religious mode. And then if I say blessed, some people think, oh, well, he's just a modern religious person. And, you know, he's not, he's not doing the old thing. So a good word for you to have in your mind, I'm still going to read it because that's the translation we're reading from, and I like to follow the translator's words, but a good, accurate replacement word that means exactly the same thing and might actually mean it better for modern ears is the word fortunate. Now, fortunate is different from lucky. Lucky means you came across this good fortune by happenstance, and you did nothing about it. Fortunate also means you did nothing for it. But it doesn't mean it was random. It means there were forces around you that conspired to bring this fortune to you, and you, the recipient, are the fortunate one. So when I say these words in your mind, in your heart, you might want to think here, fortunate are the poor in spirit. And it might change a little bit of the way you think about it. But anyway, let's dig into it. Matthew chapter 5 begins this way. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so let me remind you what I just told you about that whole mountain idea with Moses. This is, I think, what Matthew was trying to do. We know from the book of Luke that Jesus gave this message a lot of times and in a lot of places. In Luke, a very similar message to this happens on a plane. Some people, not, not an airplane, they didn't have them back then, but you know, a, a grassy plane. And so some people think that Jesus went up onto a mountainside into the hilly area of the, the region and found a plateau at the top. And so Luke called it a plane. Matthew called it a mountainside. I think probably the better way of understanding it is to say that Jesus said these words all over the place in many different occasions at many different times. Because he preached so often to so many people, he wasn't going to change his message every single time. He was going to try to get the most important things said whenever he was going to say something. And so I think he probably once preached it on a plane and once preached it on a mountainside or whatever. But anyway, Matthew's point is he's telling us about the mountain moment. Because I think Matthew, writing to super Jews, is trying to get them to get this flavor of Jesus the prophet better than Moses. But... Notice one little detail. He sees the crowds. He goes onto the mountain, and his disciples come to him. Is this Jesus avoiding the crowds? He sees the crowds and he runs away? I don't think so. Because what does the word disciples mean here? You might not know this. I had to look it up. 
But this is the first occurrence of the word disciple in the New Testament. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and this is the first use of the word disciple in the book of Matthew. So the word disciple hasn't shown up yet. Remember in the previous chapter, chapter 4, Jesus had called Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew and James and John to follow him, but he doesn't call them disciples. He just finds these four guys and says, follow me but he doesn't call them disciples. In fact, this word doesn't show up until this moment. So who are his disciples? We know of four of the 12 who are with Jesus, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And we know that there's a crowd of people, but this is the important part. This mountainside moment is not a time for Jesus to get away from the crowds. It's not a time for Jesus to huddle with his 12. It's a time for something in between. It's a time for him to get away from the crowds who don't want to follow him up this mountain and to get to a place where the people who have chosen to follow him are around him. This is Jesus beginning to shape what it means to be a citizen of this new kingdom. Now, he's not going up onto the mountain to talk to four guys. He's not on this mountainside, and he makes this big trek, so now he's just got Peter, James, John, and Andrew around him so that he can tell them something. No, this word disciple refers to a much larger category of people that have not yet been identified, including you and me. Because the question that he is sort of asking without actually asking it is the same question that was asked around the mountain of Horeb or the Mount of Sinai, when God basically is saying, what does it mean to be a citizen of this kingdom? And the question that I would ask you and that Jesus would probably ask you is, which kingdom are you a citizen of? Are you a citizen of the kingdom that's down there with the crowds? Or are you a citizen of the kingdom that's here on the mountain? Jesus is beginning to create a citizenship And he starts it with a list. The list we call the Beatitudes. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For each one of these, I'm going to pause and give you just a quick little explanation of it. In Luke, this phrase is quoted, Blessed are the poor. And it doesn't mention in spirit. Being raised in a church, I've heard lots of different varieties of explanations for this passage, and the most popular variety that I've heard in my predominantly white, predominantly evangelical church background is that poor in spirit refers to the people who acknowledge they have a spiritual need. Of course, if you're in a different context, poor in spirit would refer to the people who are authentically poor and also have a spiritual side to them. I think the best way to understand it is probably the way the Hebrews understood it back then. All impoverished people feel helpless. All impoverished people feel that the resources must come from outside them. All impoverished people are waiting for something else to come and rescue. People in America who have money, 
People in Israel back in Jesus' day who had money. People in the city of Rome back in Jesus' day who had money never felt the need for something outside themselves. We love feeling self-sufficient. And Jesus says, no, blessed are those who are so impoverished in whatever fashion that they recognize they have a desperate need. Look at the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is talking about a kind of mourning here that is not explicitly spiritual, like the people of Israel mourning over the sin of Israel or, or some Christian mourning over the sin of the nation. No, this is all kinds of suffering and mourning. As long as you are one of the citizens of the kingdom, this list applies to you. If you're a citizen and you are in mourning for some reason, for some, something going on, comfort is on its way. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, this is a famous one. You've heard people say this one before, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And a lot of people are like, well, what does that mean? The meek don't inherit squat. It's the powerful who get stuff, right? Well, did you pay attention to the word inherit? How do you inherit something? Do you earn it when you inherit something? No. Do you fight for it when you inherit something? No. How do you inherit something? Someone else dies and you were hanging around. That's how inheritance happens. You were just in the right place at the right time with the right relative or whatever it is. They're dead and now you inherit. See, meek people know they don't need to earn the earth. Meek people know they don't need to fight for the earth. Meek people just wait for God to reward them however God wants to reward them. Because who's the owner of the earth? It's not these strong, powerful people around me. The owner of the earth is God himself. Let's go on to the next one. It says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to remind you the word righteousness in the ancient world meant two different things simultaneously. We split it up into two words. We usually use the word righteous to refer to moral purity, a person who has always done the spiritually right thing to do. And then we use the word justice to refer to when the right thing happens to someone. If they did something wrong, then the right thing should be punishment. That's justice. If they didn't do anything wrong, then the right thing would be equity. That's justice. And so we use the word justice to refer to punishment for wrongdoing. We use the word justice to refer to social equity in cases where there is no fairness. And we use the word righteous when we're talking about moral purity or religious purity or something like that. But all of those concepts were embraced by this ancient word righteous. Every one of them, all three of them. In other words, the best way for you to understand righteousness is it's when the right thing gets done. No matter what the right thing is, when the right thing gets done, that was righteous. An easier way for you to remember it, hopefully. But then he says, if you hunger and thirst for the right thing to be done, you'll be filled. If you're the one who needs to do the right thing, you'll be filled. If you are waiting around for the world to be, start doing the right thing, you will be filled. If you are working hard so that the world gets the right things happening, you will be filled if you hunger and thirst for this. Then he says, blessed are the merciful, 
for they will be shown mercy. And that's just a perfect picture. For those people who are doing merciful actions, they receive mercy from God. And then blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Pure in heart doesn't just refer to a kind of internal moral purity. Growing up in my uh, environment of origin, it was easy for me to associate the word purity with sexual purity. Because as a teenager, they continued to talk frequently about, hey, listen, here's an aspect of your life where you need to be pure. And the, the truth is that purity refers to something much broader than that. Listen, if I give you a glass of pure water, what do you expect to be in the water? Flavor? Coloring? Uh, bubbles? If I give you a glass of pure water, what you expect in the glass is nothing but water. If I tell you something is pure, you want it to be only that. Purity in heart doesn't mean that I have avoided the moral bad things. That would be righteousness. Purity of heart means that my heart is singular, is focused, has one thing on its mind and only one thing on its mind. And Jesus says, the pure in heart will see God. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. There's just two more. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These two things are kind of opposites a little bit, but he's saying if you're a person who makes peace around you, you'll be called children of God. This is one of my favorite ones because, check it out, if you're ever in an environment where two people are fighting and you step into that environment and you make it better, that's called a miracle. Usually when you're in an environment and you see two other people fighting and you step into it, you almost always make it worse. Almost always make it worse. But if you step into the midst of a fight and you can somehow bring peace, I call that a miracle. And I would step back and I'd say, well, that was something that only God could have done. Because see, here's the point of peacemaking. Peacemaking is something that only God can do. And it's also something that God does. And so if you're a person of peacemaking, then you're a person who will be called a child of God. Because people will look at you in wonder and they'll be like, how'd you do that? And then blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to come back to persecution a little bit later, but I just want to highlight the phrase there at the end, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is exactly the same as the phrase from the first one. Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, this is designed to be a bookend. A bookend. The top is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The bottom one is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those, are, those two phrases are supposed to tie this whole thing together. And the thing I want you to realize is that none of this list, there's only eight of them, not ten. It's not like the Ten Commandments coming down from the mountain. This is different because every single one of them is not a command. Did you notice that? Not one of these is a command. Nowhere in this list does Jesus say, you need to be a peacemaker. Nowhere in this list does Jesus say, you need to be more pure in heart. Nowhere in this list does Jesus say, you need to do these things. 
It's a flip of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments says, you have to do these. Jesus' Beatitudes say, you're so fortunate if this is true. If you're poor in spirit, man, you're fortunate. Because you're the people who are going to end up with the kingdom of heaven. Holy cow! When I hear this, I don't think to myself, oh man, I've got to be poor in spirit. I think to myself, oh, I want to be poor in spirit. I want that. The problem is the world doesn't want that. The, nothing in this list fits with the way the world would make a list. The world would make a list that says, poor people? No. Fortunate are the self-sufficient. The people who are self-sufficient, those are the fortunate people. Mourning, you're in mourning, you're in sadness, you're suffering, you're hurting. No. Fortunate are those who are free of sadness. Meek? No, 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 no. Meek people aren't fortunate. Meek people are the problem. Fortunate people are the ones who are strong. If you are strong, then you're fortunate. You're so lucky. I so wish I was strong like you. That's the way we think. That's the way the world talks. Righteousness? No, we're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The fortunate people are the ones who are successful. It doesn't matter how they got there. It just matters that they got there. Merciful? No, merciful people aren't fortunate. Fortunate are the people who get revenge. All of us want revenge, and we envy the people who get it. Those are the fortunate people. Pure? No. We're not interested in people who just have a one-track mind. We're interested in people who have it all, because we want to be people who have it all. We want to have all the options open. We want to we do the things that are good and do the things that are bad, but we don't get caught. We want to do the things where we can say one thing and act another way and feel a third way. We, we want to protect our hypocrisy. Fortunate are the people who can have it all. And then peacemakers? No. The fortunate people are the ones who win their battles. Persecuted? No. The fortunate people are those who are appreciated, not persecuted. It's obvious that the list the world would make is opposite from the list that Jesus would make. So my question is, are you a kingdom of heaven person or a kingdom of earth person? Are you a kingdom of heaven person or a kingdom of earth person? In order to help you remember these things, I tried to condense the Beatitudes into three. Now, I'm not saying that my Beatitudes are better than Jesus's. Definitely not. What I'm trying to say is that in Jesus's statements, there are three themes that show up. The first theme is this. Those who do the work of God have the power of God. If you're a peacemaker, you're a child of God. If you're merciful, you receive mercy. The people who do the work of God are the people who have the power of God. Secondly, the people who desire the life of God receive it. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you receive it. If you're mourning because of the lack of righteousness in this world, the lack of the right thing being done in this world, then you will be comforted. The people who desire the life of God receive it. The pure in heart, they will see God. These are the things that if you long for it, God will give it. But the third one is that those who suffer 
in humility are the real citizens of the kingdom. The poor in spirit, the persecuted, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who suffer in humility are citizens of the kingdom. These are the ones that Jesus would say, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the reason why this is so important is because we live in a world where people don't suffer easily. We fight suffering. We resist suffering. We resist all forms of inconvenience. So here's my question for you. If those who suffer in humility are the citizens of the kingdom, what can we say about those people who leverage earthly power? What can we say about the people who take the strength that they have and use that strength to gain? What can we say about those people? Can we say they're citizens of the kingdom? Honestly, that's a tough question because Jesus doesn't answer it. Jesus doesn't say anything in this passage about the strong. He only talks in this passage about the weak. And the weak are the citizens of the kingdom. The meek are the citizens of the kingdom. They even get the whole earth, not just heaven. They get the earth too. Jesus is talking about the weak who inherit all this, who are the true citizens. Our only speculation is that if you're a person who embraces strength, maybe that's evidence that you're not in the right kingdom. Which kind of kingdom do you want? Well, for the next few verses here, Jesus begins to assume that he's talking to citizens of the kingdom. And so the, the next few verses we're looking at today through verse 16, Jesus is addressing citizens of the kingdom. That might be you, that might not be you. But if it is you, these next few verses apply to you. He says this, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reason this passage is so fascinating to me is that it sounds exactly like the last beatitude. It sounds exactly like number eight in that list, right? Blessed are you, I'll put it up on the screen, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's just one difference. The beatitude said blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, but then when Jesus is talking to the citizens, he changes it. Did you see? He said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. One word changed in the because of section. Beatitude number eight is you're persecuted because of righteousness. But when he's talking to citizens of the kingdom, he says, let's just be clear. Persecuted because of me. You see, there is a thing that Christians are guilty of. And it starts with a true statement. Here's the true statement. Citizens of this kingdom will be persecuted. That's a true statement. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be persecuted. It's a true statement. 
There's just one weird thing that Christians do with it. We pay attention to beatitude number eight and ignore the statement right after it. Beatitude number eight says persecuted because of righteousness. The thing we can do with that verse is that we can say, oh, so I get to define what righteousness means based on I read my Bible, I talk to people, I get to define righteousness. And then if I do that righteousness and people persecute me, then I can truly, you know, pat myself on the back and say, I'm a persecuted Christian. I'm a Christian who's doing this good stuff. And we forget that the next line, Jesus said, persecuted because of me. That's a different thing. First of all, he's saying that he is the definition of righteousness. You don't get to define righteousness. He is the definition of righteousness. And if you're going to be persecuted because of something that you have developed as your sort of value system, fine. You can be persecuted and maybe God will reward you for that and maybe he won't. But citizens of the kingdom get persecuted because of Jesus and only because of Jesus himself. Not because of the value system, but because of Jesus himself. Let me explain to you a little bit about what that means. So, um, when I was younger, I and some friends of mine embraced this, this phrase, this idea that Christians are those who are persecuted. And there was a phrase that showed up in sort of our circle that was, if you're a true Christian, then you will experience persecution. And what that did for me in my teenage brain and with my teenage friends What that did for me is it made me look for opportunities for a a thing I'm describing today as palatable persecution. A kind of persecution that I would manufacture for myself from other people that I could handle. It wasn't real persecution. I didn't want real persecution. I just wanted enough persecution from the world around me that would make me feel like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian doing the right things. I'll give you an example of how that plays out when I was in high school, because as a matter of fact, it continued on in my life and in my friends' lives for a number of years after that. It goes basically like this. I'm going to identify a thing in Christianity that is true, but offends the sensibilities of the world around me. And then I'm going to stand up and I'm going to declare, in some forceful fashion, the truth of my position in contrast to the world around me, at such time and in such a way and with such words that the people of the world around me will react negatively towards me. And therefore, when they react negatively towards me, I'll look at myself in the mirror, pat myself on the back and say, ha ha, I just got persecuted for the cause of Christ. I just got persecuted because of righteousness, because I stood up, I stood my ground for something that I thought was right. Or the second way, it shows up, is when I look at the world around me and I find a value in the world around me that's not exactly in line with Christianity, not exactly in line with some passage in the Bible. And I find that value in the world around me and I stand here just basically saying that because the world has that value, I am intrinsically victimized. I'm intrinsically persecuted as a result of that. But you know what? Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me.
It's not because you stood up for some biblical principle. It's not because the world around you is irritating to you and you're a Christian and so you have to stand up against it. When I was a kid, there were two big issues that Christians loved to feel persecuted about. One of the issues was prayer in public schools. So I was raised mostly in the 80s and early 90s. And during that time, Christians were really, really upset about the removal of prayer from public schools. You see, there was a time in the old, you know, history of the United States where the predominant culture of the United States was not just white, it was also Christian. And so the predominant um, system in the world, wherever you found it in the United States, whether it was in school or in business or in the government, wherever you found a system at work, you also found the religious system of Christianity mostly latent in it and with it. And so schools would begin their days with prayer, and teachers would pray before classes sometimes. In fact, a lot of schools were started by churches, but there was this movement that happened in the middle of the 20th century to remove prayer from public schools. And Christians began to view that as persecution. Christians are being persecuted because prayer is no longer in public schools. Now, as a a teenager, I went to a private school. And so I didn't exactly know how prayer was being removed from public schools. I was just being taught and I felt like it was outlawed. Now, as I've grown up, I've realized that Christian clubs are still allowed in almost every school. Prayer is still something that students are allowed to do, like on private time when they're at lunch, praying before their meals or whatever they want to. Prayer isn't something that there's like a prayer policeman walking around the school giving, giving people some sort of detention if they're praying or something. That's not the way it works. It just means the institution no longer does prayers at the beginning of the day or the beginning of every class or something like that. And Christians back in the 80s saw that as persecution, uh, that their rights were being limited. But you know what? As I grew older, I began to realize that you've really only got two options, right? Either the school is a secular place, or it's a place where all religions are expressed and treated equally, or it's a religious place. Like, that's it. Those are, those are the only options. Either religious, whatever it is, all religions are treated equally, in that environment, and by equal I mean no expression by the leadership or even expression by the leadership. Either all of them are treated equally or you have a religious institution. Because if one of the religious expressions is more predominant than the others, the institution is a religious institution. I'm not opposed to religious institutions. I send my kids to religious schools. I send my kids to religious... Charlie's going to a religious college. I'm not opposed to religious institutions. In fact, the uh, idea of being in a country where religious institutions are allowed proves that I'm not being persecuted, right? The weird thing is that we like to label things like that as persecution. The the second issue when I was younger was this idea of um, the Ten Commandments in courthouses. Maybe you're familiar with that. Ten Commandments, there used to be like monuments or whatever, like religious Christian monuments in courthouses and other public places, like nativity scenes or Ten Commandments monuments or something. And when they were being removed from those places, I remember a lot of people getting up in arms, like, oh my goodness, they're removing the Ten Commandments from the courthouse. And Christians were treating it like we were being persecuted. 
But that's not persecution. Find me one passage in the Bible where we are told the Ten Commandments are supposed to be carved on stone and displayed in front of a public building. Find me one passage in Scripture where it says what you really need more than anything else is a better-looking monument. Find me one passage in Scripture where the solution to any problem is let's just put up some sort of statue. Listen. Christians have for a long time created and manufactured persecution around us when it doesn't exist because it allows us to pat ourselves on the back as if we're being righteous. And today it's worse than ever. It's worse than ever in my lifetime. I'm going to briefly mention three issues. Number one, anti-discrimination laws. I know a lot of Christians who are uptight that our government is making anti-discrimination laws. Sadly, when I was younger, the anti-discrimination laws were against racial discrimination. And I knew white Christians who were opposed to affirmative action laws and were opposed to anti-racial discrimination laws because they thought it was somehow God-ordained that we should all be treated equally and that meant that affirmative action was the reverse kind of racism. I, I heard that phrase a number of times, reverse racism. Uh, why can't we have a white history month? That kind of stuff. And I was, I was raised in an environment where that was the issue. But today, it's still the issue just with different discrimination laws. Anti-discrimination laws about a person's view of sexuality and other things like that. And listen, that's not persecution. There's this thing going on right now that Christians are uptight about called cancel culture. As if that's somehow persecution. That... If I post something offensive on Facebook and Facebook removes that thing, I'm being canceled or I'm being deplatformed and, and what happened to my free speech or something along those lines. Or, or people who might say that COVID restrictions are persecution because they uniquely affect the gathering of large groups of people in smaller areas with loud singing and whatnot. And so COVID restrictions seem like it's Christian persecution. None of those things are Christian persecution. Do you know how I know? Because Jesus didn't give me any guidance on anything with regard to those three things. Not once does Jesus say, hey, listen, we really need to make sure we have sane anti-discrimination laws. Not once did Jesus say something like, hey, listen, you know, government, you're overstepping your bounds with these COVID restrictions. Never once does Jesus say, hey, listen, I'm going to say some things that bug you, but I have freedom of speech. Never once does Jesus say, you need to fight for your freedom of speech. Our problem is that we read the words and apply them backwards. We apply them as if Jesus said, here's the right way to use your power. When what Jesus really said is here's the right way to be a citizen of a different kingdom. A different kingdom. And why is this so important to me? Why did I spend so much time on it? Because the very next thing Jesus says is you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Jesus looks at his citizens, 
citizens of his kingdom. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if you don't get it done, you're no longer good for anything. He also says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says this is an issue. How we view our relationship to the rest of the world should never be about whether I'm standing up for some sort of principle that I have decided is the principle to stand up for so that the world can then persecute me and I can feel vindicated in that. Jesus never asks me to feel vindicated. Jesus never asks me to exercise my power. Jesus never asks me to push forward for something for my own benefit. And when he talks about persecution, he says persecuted because of him. Let me ask you a very simple question. Anytime you have ever felt persecuted, can you honestly say it was because you at that moment looked more like Jesus than yourself? Persecution isn't about a moral thing that I stood up for the right thing and other people don't like it. The whole persecution issue is whether or not I look so much like Jesus that people who don't like Jesus don't like me. That's it. That's the only thing. Because you know what the truth is? A lot of people in this world, especially in the United States, love Jesus. The one thing they don't understand about Jesus is his exclusive claim to the kingdom. They're willing to accept Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher. They're not willing to accept Jesus as their king. And if Jesus is our king, that's the part that sets us up different. But if we look like Jesus is our king and we are following him and we look so much like Jesus that they begin to get irritated with the Jesus that we look like, that's real persecution. But the question is not, have I stood up for the right thing? The question is, do I look like Jesus? Let me try to tie this all together with a simple phrase. Citizens of this kingdom make the world a better place. Now, as we close this down, when Jesus talks about salt and light, his main concern was that the salt was going to lose its saltiness. That doesn't happen in the modern world today because our salt is pure. The salt they had back then was mixed with other minerals. And so you would have like limestone and salt that were like evenly mixed. Salt was really rare. It was very difficult to come by. It was very expensive. And so you would have salt mixed with these other things. It just The problem is that salt is more water-soluble than the other things like limestone. And so if you have salt and limestone mixed together in a humid environment, eventually the salt is going to leach out leaving nothing left but the limestone. And so your salt block is no longer salty, and it's time to throw it out. That's the way it works. And so Jesus was worried that the people who looked like salt were not acting like salt. 
He was worried that the light, the people who should be shining light, had something else hiding it. The people who should be displaying light had something else over them that was hiding the true light from the world. That's what he was worried about. But what we do is we flip it. We read that and we're like, oh, so Jesus is worried about me not being salty enough. So what I need to do is be extra salty. Jesus was worried about the light not shining forth. And so what I need to be, what I need to do is be extra bright. What we do is we turn salt into the kind of salt that we use for curing hams. Just loads of it. Just pile it all on. Just bury the ham in the salt. That never would have been Jesus' metaphor because salt was way too expensive for them to do that kind of stuff. But just bury the ham right in the salt and let all that salt kind of soak in. But guess what? If you take that salt and put it on your food, it now has made the food worse. It's ruined it. No one wants to eat it. And that much salt will kill you. So being too salty is a major problem. The other thing we do as Christians sometimes is we look at the world around us and we say, this world needs some light. And then what we do is we identify the thing, we identify the spot, we identify the area in the world around us that looks especially dark to us. And we get our super powerful spotlights and we focus it right on that little issue. And we're like, ha, that issue right there, that's the evil issue. That's the thing we need to address. All y'all, come on, let's attack that. That doesn't sound like what Jesus was saying. Spotlight is not what he called us. What he called us was salt and light, and the illustration was giving light to everybody in the room. The illustration he gave us was salt that that gives life flavor. It's the job of the Christian to make life better. I want to close with just a recognition that we have believed, maybe not you, I'm not going to accuse you, but I have at times in the past, and I know a a number of people in my own circle, have believed that we Christians are fighting a culture war. And that, that the kingdom is something that needs to be defended. The kingdom is something that needs to be fought for. That the world and its culture is moving in a direction, and if we don't act like the preservative salt, and if we don't act like the bright spotlight, then the world will continue on in its darkness. But I want to give you a better alternative. And so I've thought through a thought experiment with you. I'm going to walk you through a thought experiment, a mental exercise this morning. And it's based on a principle that I think all Christians can agree to. In fact, it's a principle that I think most non-Christians can agree to. But at the very least, it's a, it's a principle that all Christians should be able to agree to. A spiritual principle that simply says this, the life of every child is precious. Now, if you are attuned to the culture war issues of our day, you are already attuned to where this is going to go. Because as soon as you think this phrase, the life of every child is precious, there is one red-hot, hot-button issue among Christians, 
that is all about this kind of thing, and you can already begin to feel, if you're watching at home, maybe the blood is starting to boil because you don't even know what we're going to be talking about here. This is a thought experiment, all right? The life of every child is precious. That is a spiritual principle, and we can agree to it. I think almost every Christian can agree to this spiritual principle. At least Jesus could when he said, let the little children come to me, right? So this is a spiritual principle, and, and, If this principle gets lived out, it glorifies God, doesn't it? We would agree that if this principle gets lived out and practiced, then God gets glorified. There's only one problem. Having a principle doesn't determine your behavior. There are lots of possible behaviors that are associated with this principle. I'm going to put a couple of them up on the screen, or rather, a lot of them. One possible behavior is you could talk about abortion providers as murderers. Use the word murder to categorize abortion providers. And if you do that, then we all begin to develop a collective disgust against abortion providers. And listen, I'm going to tell you, I think every single one of these has biblical justification. Every one of these behaviors has biblical justification. If, if you really believe that the life of every child is precious, if you really believe that the baby in the womb is a precious life, then taking that life is equivalent to a kind of murder. And so technically speaking, that's one biblical behavior that could be done. Number two, talk about those who are considering abortion as evil. And, and categorize the mom who's thinking she might get an abortion, categorize her as evil. Now listen, that's something as well that has some biblical justification for it because all of us are evil. All of us have sin in us. We are all sinners, and so every one of us could be categorized as evil. We're just you know, pointing a spotlight at one particular area of the world. We could lobby the government to make abortion illegal. We could help people get non-abortive contraceptives. We could help pregnant moms find emotional support. We could help moms pay their medical bills. We could help moms and dads receive education to raise the child. We could help provide daycare for the child. We could help provide food for the family. We could serve as foster or adoptive parents because the life of every child is precious. We could lobby churches and governments to help financially and physically in many different ways. Here's the question. With a list of possible behaviors and a principle that every single one of these supports, the principle is the life of every child is precious. Every one of these behaviors does support that principle. The question is, which ones are proper for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Take a look at the list. Just identify for yourself which of those sound like the Beatitudes. Do any of them sound meek? Do any of them sound self-sacrificial? Do any of them sound like a poor-in-spirit kind of person? Do any of them sound like the Beatitudes? Take a look at these behaviors. Do any of them sound like salt? Do any of them seem like light? Which of these behaviors would make life better? And which of these behaviors, if seen by a watching world, would cause them to glorify God? 
See, I think a lot of us as Christians kind of feel like we need persecution to validate ourselves. And so we take actions that make the world persecute us or make us feel like we're being persecuted. But the last thing Jesus said in this section is let your light shine before people so that they will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Persecution happens, but the activity of the believer is to do the kind of good that makes the world around us glorify the God we serve. What kind of behaviors are the ones that are proper for citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Many behaviors flow from your spiritual principles, but which ones are proper for citizens of the kingdom? Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.